Well, at this point, I would rather be talking about literally almost anything else on the planet. We continue to dig into the SBF and FTX saga, the kid gloves that the mainstream media and the government seem to be using with him, why that might be the case, and try to predict what the likely outcomes are in the end for both FTX, SBF, of course, and the crypto industry. I have an amazing panel because it's Thursday and that's what we do. We do roundtables. I've got Alex Tapscott, Dan Roberts, and Dean Skirka today to talk this once again to death. You guys don't want to miss this. Let's go. Let's go. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, also known as the Wolf of All Streets. Before we get started, please subscribe to the channel and hang your head in shame for the crypto industry and just accidentally bang it on the like button while hanging your head in shame. That's the way we need you today to like. Listen, not the best time for the perception of the crypto industry, but actually I was talking with uh, some of the panelists right before we started and one could argue that this is the best time if you are an investor or looking to start working in this industry because it's the opportunity to effectively buy the generational bottom, both with your money and potentially with your career. As we see people continue to capitulate, companies going under, people quitting and going back to whatever boring jobs they had before they got on this roller coaster, you could argue that just like retail investors who are selling the bottom with their money, whether that's to pay taxes, buy a house, or just to pay those bills that they probably can't afford at this point, well, that's the same thing if you're now looking to exit the industry in general. We've got a lot to talk about today. I'm going to go ahead and bring everyone on right now. I've got Dean Skirka from Wonderfy, Dan Roberts from Decrypt, and Alex Tapscott from Literally Everything. Alex, I never even know how to introduce you because you're you're a man of uh, of many talents. And uh, Alex has obviously been here before, but this is the first time we're welcoming uh, Dean and Dan. So, guys, uh, we're excited to have you. Alex, last time uh, we spoke, which was in person in New York, I think in in October at yep. uh, Mainnet, we were a little more uh, optimistic. Right. We were talking about uh, how the bottom was likely in and the future of crypto and all the things that uh, Web3 was going to eat. Has anything changed in your mind as a result of the news we've had over the past, I guess, two months since and obviously the FTX and SBF debacle? Yeah, well, you know what they say when you try to pick bottoms, you end up with stinky fingers and often <laughs> it's, uh, impossible to, to time exactly when, when this stuff happens. Um, but a lot of the fundamentals that we described that we discussed in September are more or less uh, the same as they are today. But it's undeniable that the collapse of FTX, um, you know, obviously represented a huge fall from grace from one of the most well known figures and also a big credibility hit um, for the industry. And I think as, a, as an industry, there's a lot of cleaning up that needs to happen, um, both in terms of, you know, how we think about centralized exchanges, um, how we think about you know, personalities and figures in this space. I think probably we've relied too much on, you know, some sort of like hero complex um, when it comes to some of these big founders to try and lead us through this industry. And I think we need to return to the what uh, the principles of what makes the asset class and the technology, you know, so compelling and powerful, which is that it is, uh, you don't need to rely on intermediaries to hold assets, to move assets, uh, you know, to use your assets. This is something, um, a technology that is that is peer-to-peer, -peer, that's self-custodial. And we need to lean into those features uh, in order to grow from here. And 
And guys, just real quick on the reputational hit. It's been interesting to me because uh, you could fault the industry for that hero worship, you know, for making Sam Bankman-Fried this kind of idol. But that's not the same as the leap that too many people, mainstream places are making, which is the collapse of another company. And they point and say, ah, see, uh, crypto was a scam. It was a fraud. It's a house of cards. Uh, people are equating, you know, another bad actor. Now, granted, a very big one, one that too many people and, and industry kind of leaders had elevated with the whole industry. And, you know, even though it's not really the job of those of us who report on crypto news to try and defend the industry's right to exist, it is remarkable to me. And I try and dispel that with people and explain mm -hmm. that, you know, look, a company that behind the scenes was not doing what it said it was doing, you know, lending out customer funds, not holding them one to one, using its own shit coin for loans and, and investments funneling funds to a separate separate entity all that reflects on that one company and that one founder and his people it doesn't equate with the whole industry but that's the problem i mean alex is right uh, it gives people who already think that all of crypto is stupid and irresponsible and for criminals uh, another victory lap and that's what happens every time it happened with terra even though those two things were very different yeah, okay, well, Dan, you go ahead. I just want to say something really quick. I'm sorry. You, you work in crypto native media, obviously. So you view this through a different lens probably than the mainstream. Yeah. Just as you were saying that, obviously, I, I alluded to it in the intro. We have the kid gloves on from the mainstream media. You know, Sam Bateman Fried was ready to save the world, but unfortunately, fraud got yeah. in the way, right? I mean, the Boston Globe had this yesterday was a tweet. Carolyn Ellison, MathWiz, and Newton Native was bound for success. Then she got into crypto. You can literally replace the word crypto with meth, yep. crack, <laughs> like anything, and it would sound the same. It's exactly what you're saying. Or how like about it's one that? thing to say this company is fraud. It's another thing to say crypto right. did this wonderful child. Like, what well, we and when you see something like, you know, what was the EV company that Trevor Milton was behind mm -hmm. and they tried to do a SPAC and it turned out they were saying all our cars are hydrogen powered and it was all a lie. <laughs> you know, people don't look uh, Nikola. People don't look at that and say, ah, so the entire EV space is a fraud and a scam and everyone should stay away. It's just one player. But when this happens in crypto, even though, you know, Bitcoin's been trading 13 years, it's been doing what it's supposed to do. But in the big scheme of things, that's still pretty new. And so whenever there's a crypto scandal like this, people say, ah, the whole industry is a total joke and it's dangerous and it's for fraudsters. Yeah, I just want to jump in quickly, which is to say, I think that one of the silver linings of this is that the crypto media has really stepped up in an impressive way. Um, you know, Dan, Dan, like, I think we've all been in this space long enough to remember a time when the crypto media was basically just this like mouthpiece that, that overinflated any small bit of news to try and like pump bags. Um, that was the case for many years. And now it's the, it's the uh, voice of reason in the room. It's the, it's the institution that's breaking stories, that's providing like sound analysis, that's trying to like actually help people understand these issues rather than trying to put like a spin on it, which is what Dan is saying. You know, it's been extremely critical of, of a lot of players in the industry and a lot of the uh, and very clear, clear-minded, clear-eyed about a lot of the challenges, right? And I think that's a, a sign of, of maturity for the industry. So, just a little thing for Dan there. Yeah, I, I think too. Like when, <clears throat> excuse me, when you look at the year as a whole and you look at the broader market downturn, I don't think it's uncommon with prior cycles where you see companies with, uh, you know, maybe poor business models getting flushed out or exposed in in these market environments. And you know, certainly when you think about the entirety of this year with BlockFi, Celsius, Three Arrows, Luna, and now FTX, you know, I think it's largely representative of bad business models being exposed in market downturns that might've worked when, you know, we're in up only mode. And so, you know, I think the 
magnitude of the FTX story, there's certainly elements from a media perspective that are you know, more compelling than any of the other names I mentioned, which probably draws more attention. But I think you're right. Like the idea that this is reflective on crypto entirely is is obviously not you know accurate in my opinion. And I think um, you know if, if you looked at you know the industry holistically, it really is like sort of the flushing out of poor business models. And you know we've seen that in prior cycles. And I think that's probably you know more relevant than you know looking at FTX or SBF and you know drawing any type of conclusions around you know the broader crypto industry. It's it's, funny, it's, it's, it's unfair to even go ahead, Dan. Sorry. Well, well, that list Dean rattled off is just so long that it, it is sort of stunning, right? Like, oof, tough, tough year. I mean, you know, Terra and Doquan, 3AC and Celsius, Voyager, now BlockFi, which was always inevitable. You're right. And yet, you know, I'm thinking <laughs> about this happened in 2017. You flush out the bad players and the industry builds and continues to grow. Um, you know, I've been writing about Bitcoin since 2011. We've seen these cycles come and go. So it's just funny to me. Um, you know, Scott, yeah. you're totally right. The Globe headline is a great example, but it, it gets to people. I mean, you know, my dad is, is in his early 70s. He lives in Boston. For him, the Boston Globe is the paper of record. For mm -hmm. him, the Globe is the New York Times. He saw that story and emailed me immediately and said, oh, Caroline Ellison was from Newton. And, you know, he, right. he walked away from it saying, oh, a nice girl who got into crypto. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, it's the same as meth. But it, it's very disingenuous as you guys have like, absolutely pointed out to label the crypto industry as unique in this situation, right? As we were talking, I pulled up on Bloomberg, the uh, tech company job slashing tracker, Amazon, Apple, Adobe, Chime, Cisco, Digital Currency Group, that's one of us, DoorDash, you know, Intel. I mean, literally everyone everywhere is firing people, right? So why is the narrative <laughs> different here? It's well, literally, I, I mean, it's everywhere. Twitter, well, I, I mean, they <laughs> Era, let me jump in. So I think everything that everyone's saying is correct. It's correct that FTX is a company. It's not the industry. It's a company that built services on top of the technology, right? So the technology is a credibly neutral thing, and it's not in question here. You know, blockchains keep running. Validators uh, keep operating. You know, blocks keep getting added. You know, transactions keep occurring. Like, everything is working in the underlying technology. And so that in, that is an important distinction. And it's also another important distinction to be made that, um, the mainstream media and the crypto media are treating this differently. But there is a distinction between companies firing people and a bunch of companies going under because of mismanagement, bad risk management or fraud, right? Like those are those are definitely distinct things. And I think that we can we can say the former, which is that let's separate the, the bad actors from the underlying technology. We can say that, but we can also say, but what are the prescriptive things that need to be done here? in order to push this industry forward, right? My view basically is that all of these centralized exchanges or anybody that's you know a custodial entity that is holding assets on behalf of people uh, or, or businesses needs to be subject to you know, stronger regulations. But we need to segregate the companies that operate on top of the technology with the technology itself. A good, a good sort of frame of reference for this would be the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which basically regulated, um, you know, entities that use the internet, but did not regulate the internet itself. And in fact, made it made it so that internet service providers were not subject to copyright laws if someone was sending something that was, uh, you know, copyright, that was a copyright infringement item over the internet. You know, they were basically a dumb pipe. So we need to sort of create rules to sort of segregate these things. Right. I, think the sec I think the second thing is that we need to, the next crop of entrepreneurs needs to not just build CFI lending platforms right that like use a bunch of leverage and like try and get offer people the moon, they need to build 
decentralized applications that add that that provide useful services to most people. I think the 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 big exciting thing from the last cycle to me was the DeFi explosion of innovation, but it was still fundamentally geared towards like what I would call capital markets activities, a lot of like trading and margin uh, lending and, um, you know, like speculation using per perpetual futures and so forth. And that's fine. That's OK. We proved all these things can work. We proved AMMs could work. We proved, you know, decentralized lo uh, loan books could work and so forth. So now let's just apply that to some more mainstream kinds of financial services and see if we can like drive more incremental users. Um, I talked about the the hero worship. So, you know, I think we need to sort of like downgrade individuals and their relative importance to an industry, especially with a technology that isn't supposed to rely on any single entity or person. And then I also think you need to basically acknowledge that like as much as it self-custody is, you know, uh, one of the big superpowers of this technology, especially if you're living in a part of the world where you're worried about, you know, inflation or about you know, corrupt governments or, you know, inadequate financial infrastructure. For a lot of people, holding your own assets is, is definitely like a barrier. So we need to come up with like creative, simple solutions to allow people to, to self-custody their assets without having to like read a manual, right? And it's only if we can do that that we can create like conditions for, you know, hundreds of millions of people to to use the the assets in in the way i think that they're intended or at least some of them are intended right which is you know as a medium of exchange or as a useful asset in a web3 application or some other you know um creative way not simply as a way to like buy and sell tokens and i think that you know we need to be we can't just be like ah fuck it you know like the mainstream media is wrong it's just spf he's a big fraud it's like no let's use this moment as an opportunity to like reset <coughs> And think about like how we move forward to help put this industry back on the right footing basically yeah i i would say to alex's point uh, around decentralized platforms and protocols i still think the fact of the matter is looking out three to five years i think predominantly most of the activity that will happen at the retail level will still exist on centralized platforms yeah, it's just and so i think say. yeah and so i look at <clears throat> parallels you know within canada um you know with that what happened in 2019 when two of the you know predominant platforms at that time uh, Quadriga and Einstein Exchange, you know, both uh, went under under varying circumstances. But what was the net result in Canada? There was a lack of trust and general interest in the market in the short term. But with respect to regulation, it really lit a fire under the Canadian regulators to really get this right, or at least start to get, you know, put something in place. And so on the back of that, a framework was established by the Canadian Securities Administrators on how to regulate spot trading crypto platforms. Now, that's not the entirety of this ecosystem. And certainly with, you know, DeFi becoming as popular as it has or NFTs or, you know, other use cases, um, it's not everything and it's not perfect, but it's a starting point. Companies like ours being Bitbuy and Coinberry went through that registration process in 2021. And now you have a framework in Canada where at the very least spot trading of crypto assets is regulated by securities regulators in Canada. And so, you know, uh, if I can, sort of think about any positives on the back of this, this might encourage regulators in the US and abroad to really take this seriously and understand the risk that their, you know, constituents are, are, are you know, un, un placed under when they actually are participating in these platforms without that framework in place. So, you know, my hope is that this will sort of be a catalyst in some ways for US regulation, which I think will be a naturally a huge boost to this industry going forward and then hopefully in other larger markets as well yeah i agree with Dean. sorry as a as a fellow canadian like person who's in the canadian market um you know the, the the what you really want to do is try and bring as much of this activity 
within centralized exchanges onshore and to be so that the local regulators um, and also so that um, and I mean like through centralized custodial entities, right? Uh, so that the regulators can keep an eye on it. And that's so that also so those businesses can be subject to the law of the land in places like Canada and the United States. Um, I, I do wonder, though, that there's so many things that like FTX International offered that FTX US was unable to offer, um, you know, beyond spot trading, the futures side of it, the synthetics and everything else, that there's always going to be something that that the regulator in a place like Canada or the US is not comfortable with that, that users want to access. They're always going to want to go to where that action is. So I think that like Dean, like my first point when I was sort of laying it out was, I think regulations like to bring more assets and more more users on shore and, and bring these companies under the purview of like regulators is obviously a very positive thing. But I think this, there's still always gonna be a limit to what that uh, is able to achieve ultimately. Yeah, of course. And, and it just, I think it speaks to the, like the fast paced nature of this industry and how pr new products in, are always being developed and new use cases are always coming into market. And so, you know, you look at a world, you know, in 2021 where Canadian regulators have, uh, you know, regula regulation in place around spot markets, you know, platforms like ours still see clients withdrawing, you know, crypto to decentralized protocols or to other platforms to take advantage of, of, of um, you know, offerings that are not available in Canada. And so, you know, I think what we have in Canada is a good start, but I think you're absolutely right. Like, you know, as best as we can, we need to encompass all of this activity, uh, you know, within regulated platforms. And so, you know, BitBuy just recently launched its regulated staking platform. And, you know, that's an example of regulators understanding the fast paced nature of this industry, understanding the risk that Canadians are placed under when they buy on a regulated platform and then withdraw it offshore to stake. And so I think you just need to see more of that evolution as the, the industry evolves. But I think starting with spot markets, which is you know predominantly where a lot of this activity starts uh, to a certain degree, is like a is probably the right first step. And Scott, if we just zoom in on the DeFi part of this, you know, it's been interesting to me. Uh, we talked about the victory lap for so-called no coiners. It's also been a victory lap for DeFi advocates who say, well, this is why we always say, don't put your money on a centralized exchange. The problem with that is <clears throat> you're not going to see centralized exchanges just go away. I mean, you know, a company like Coinbase is able to say, well, you know, we don't do that with customer funds. We don't even have an exchange token. We always hold your funds one to one. We're publicly traded in the U.S. Uh, we have a, a bit more oversight, like the, the kind of new folks who came into crypto during the pandemic, Wall Street, mainstream investor types. They're not going to you know, go on to Aave and Compound. I mean, they're just not. Uh, the, the friction there in the UX is still way too thorny and opaque for them. They can trust a centralized exchange. You know, people say, oh, cold storage, use a hardware wallet. Most regular folks, if they're ready to even dip a toe into crypto, they're just not going to do that. So the people who are saying, well, this is why centralized exchanges don't work, not quite. This is why centralized exchanges that behind the scenes were fraudulent don't work and were mismanaged. Um, so it's, it's going to continue to exist, you know, both camps. And that's always fascinated me, that tension between the centralization of crypto, which is like the dirty secret of the industry, and then the OG idealists who say decentralize all the things. It's going to take a long time. Yeah. And there's always uh, I, a sliding scale there anyways, because there's, you know, if you keep continue down the decentralization scale, you generally end up at like an Amazon web server. Right. And so, and so there's there's always a point where you have to understand, I think, that it's on a spectrum and it's not just black or white between yeah. the two a couple other points there 
as amazing as it sounds to live in a world of purely DeFi, last time I checked, I still need to pay my taxes, bills, kids, private school, mortgage in dollars. So there has to be an on and off ramp at the very least. And as idealist as it is to believe that DeFi is a future, which I do to a very large degree, you also have to be realistic about the exploits and hacks that oh, are yeah. happening there. So yes, DeFi... Right? Yeah, DeFi hummed along. DeFi it. hummed along beautifully as far as the loans being collateralized, being liquidated in an orderly manner. DeFi works, but that doesn't mean that everyone could just put all their money. In I, I I completely agree I, with that. Yeah, you think about the, the, <laughs> like the, you think about the burden of you know a first time participant in this market, uh, setting up a self hosted wallet, and you know going through the motions of doing you know everything to self custody and de risk themselves entirely. I, my view would be a lot less people would be in the industry today. And so I look at, you know, on ramps or centralized exchanges really as that entry point to make it super easy and, uh, you know, for people to uh, you know, access these markets. And that's usually what I see is like the first point. What happens thereafter? You know, you buy a bit of crypto, you finally have a bit more interest. You start learning more. You know, you learn more about Ethereum or other assets. You start learning about how to custody your own uh, assets and what that means from a technology perspective. You know, I, so I, I look at it as like an education tool to get people into the market and then start learning about the benefits and how they can, uh, you know, self-custody if they so choose. Yeah, but that was the downfall of Carolyn Ellison. You just described the gateway drug that led her right to that crack that <laughs> ruined her whole life. Sorry, Alex. I know you had yeah, just to, build, just to build off of what, what everybody's saying. Um, yeah, I think of Web3, I think in order for Web3 to scale to say a billion people, you need to think of it more as like a Web3 tool set than a Web3, like full Web3. And so what, like, what's a Web3 tool set? Well, there's certain things that, you know, might be, you could you could think about, right? So like digital goods in general, I think is like a Web3 Web tool, um, like an NFT or crypto asset or stable coin. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that um, you you know, keep it on a ledger and that you, you know, maintain a seed phrase all the time. And it could mean that, you know, in certain instances, you're trading on a semi-centralized platform, like say an open seat, right? Or you're um, using a centralized exchange as an off-ramp to pay your taxes. Or it could mean um, that, you know, if you're an enterprise, and it's not just people, if you're an enterprise that, you know, maybe you're, you're fooling around with uh, stable coins as a payment tool or NFTs as a marketing, you know, initiative, but you're not like reinventing, you're not turning yourself into a DAO or something. Um, so I think that the the way to, you know, it's not that we're trying to like red pill people with gateway drugs, though it is a little bit of that. It's more just, you know, it, it, practically speaking, there's a lot of things that are useful about Web3 tools that, that, that don't require you to do everything. I think in Dean's case, like he mentioned the idea of an on-ramp. I think it's also it's just just you have to think intuitively like most i think most people or a big chunk of the population will never want to have a usb key with all their money on it i just don't see that being the case and i so i just see that there will always be some role for partners in uh in this industry now i think that it, it i don't you can't predict human behavior you might have said you know people wouldn't drive cars or they you know like the the inventor the, the mr mercedes said that there will never be more than 100,000 vehicles because you can't train more than 100,000 chauffeurs right so like he didn't think that people could drive cars of, on their own so like you have to not assume people will only act a certain way forever but in general at least for the next decade or so you know i see that there's some role for counterparties and partners in the space now maybe it's something like multi-sig or multi-party computation or something where you know you hold a you hold a little thing and you know 
your partner holds one and your bank and maybe your bank and maybe the government or something. And there's some sort of way to like make it simple for people to understand with like a, an easy recovery process in case they do something stupid, which is like you're trying to make everything idiot proof, right? Secure and idiot proof at the same time is extremely difficult. Um, so I don't know how that evolves, but like in, in my opinion, you know, like some sort of centralized parties are going to be important. The thing is you don't, they're supposed to be, you know, they were they were intended always to be like an on-ramp to the asset class of the industry. And what you want to do is basically like downgrade them from the industry to sort of a supporting role. And yeah, we need Chinese walls. I mean, we need them not to be custodians and not to be your bank. They should just be your exchange. Well, yeah, or or, or some sort of, well, there's that. There's the, um, we, I'm saying like, let's, let's put them into a, a, one of many in the industry, but also, yeah, we can de- disaggregate their services in the way that DeFi does, right? You segregate just exchange and custody and lending and all these different things into different kinds of buckets, right? So that's another idea too. But I just think that, you know, we need to be able to thread the needle here while saying, yeah, we should probably make sure that like Binance isn't 70% of all crypto asset volumes, which it is, um, because that seems like a choke point and a too big to fail issue, while also saying, well, but there's always going to be some need for, you know, parties like this to help to, you know, grease the wheels and move this industry forward. Alex, I know you need to uh, go, right? It's uh, 10 o'clock. So, guys, everybody check out Alex after this conversation. Just check Alex me out. Right? Yeah. <laughs> check him out, guys. Yeah, go check find him on the Twitter on the Twitter machine. All right. Much improved, yeah, Elon Musk. Right. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Take care, everyone. Thank you. That uh, social so- media boneyard. Yes, that, that, that's right. So, I mean, what what do you guys uh, what do you guys think about that? Go ahead, Dan. Sorry. Well, I was just going to add, you know, the the idea that we do still need centralized parties. It's so true, but it's something people in crypto don't like to talk about and like to acknowledge. I always use as an example, and I'm someone who believes that there will be really cool use cases for NFTs. I mean, they're just tokens. I think we'll stop using that jargon because the very acronym NFT has become kind of poisonous and toxic. And yes, there is a speculative bubble where people were paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for a, a cartoon monkey. But, you know, I've seen at events like NFT NYC, like token gated parties, like that's very cool. There's going to be use cases. The problem is I've had regular folks, you know, friends who are only barely interested in the industry say to me, okay, I'm ready to buy an NFT. I'd like to buy an NFT. So what what do I do? And even in describing it, I I start to feel ludicrous. It's like, I say, well, you got to go to an exchange and you got to buy a little ETH and then make sure you have a MetaMask wallet. You send the ETH to your MetaMask wallet. Then you go to the NFT site. You're probably going to have to convert your ETH into wrapped ETH, you know, wet. And then you can, it's like, no, 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 no. I mean, even someone who's not a tech idiot, that's just too many steps. And so there are going to be services and there already are that that kind of help create bridges for people. And the true DeFi DGENs can, can poo-poo that, but that has to be the the segue, as Dean phrased it, the the kind of on-ramp to getting to the the true state of things that crypto people want. Because for now, you know, Alex talked about how big DeFi got. Well, I mean, it's big in terms of the amount of money in in DeFi liquidity pools. But as I understand it, the actual number of different human beings who've invested in DeFi, it's like fewer than 3 million. I mean, this is still very small. I think way lower than 3 million. I I was talking with Josh Frank from the Thai recently and we had him on here and he wouldn't give the numbers. We were kind of privately talking at Web3 in Vegas. And he was like, we were digging in pretty deep to some of these protocols. And there was a day where it was like 70 people used Uniswap. Yeah. Yeah. This is niche. 70, you know, and yeah. Mm. Go ahead, Dean. I think Dan's point on, um, you know, trying to explain to somebody how to buy an NFT for the first time is a great example. And, you know, for someone like myself, 
uh, in many ways, using my MetaMask wallet to buy something is easier than, you know, pulling out my wallet and punching in my credit card details. But certainly that's not for everybody. So I think, you know, I still think centralized platforms will play, you know, very critical role in the next, you know, five to 10 years onboarding the next generation of crypto users. And I think, you know, to Dan's point, like the UX around some of these decentralized protocols is probably like the biggest prohibitor for growth right now. And so when, if and when these platforms are as simple as it is for non-crypto people to buy something on Amazon, as an example, I think you start to see, you know, a lot more utility and a lot more people like coming around to it. I think right now the concept is, you know, completely foreign. And I've had the same conversation around, you know, how do I buy an NFT? Well, you know, sign up for BitBuy, open, you know, buy Ethereum, open a MetaMask wallet. What is that? How does that work? Store your keys, like, you know, your, your seed phrase, don't lose it. Uh, like, I, I just think the burden is, is too high right now for mass adoption. And so I still think, you know, ultimately on that basis, centralized platforms will play, you know, meaningful role in the growth of this industry. And so if you have that view, you know, what is the best way to protect people and avoid instances like FTX or BlockFi or Celsius? It's really, you know, regulation that, you know, uh, in some respect may not be perfect or complete, but is a starting point that ultimately serves to protect the participants in this industry, which will, in my view, open up the doors for more participants to, 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 to you know, enter the space. And, and people in crypto, they, they sort of, regulation has become such a, a boogeyman term that they make the mistake of thinking that regulation means shutting down. And that's not the case. You know, I mean, you know, when when Biden put out that executive order, which you know amounted to basically nothing, but it said, hey, hey, let's get all the agencies on the same page about regulating the industry. He, he didn't say, let's make sure we shut this stuff down. It's it's evil and bad. He just said, let's create safeguards and rules of the road. They don't want regular people to lose their shirts. But I think the mistake people in crypto make is they think regulation means you know they're gonna they're gonna kill and ruin all of these great companies. Well, we lost our shirts without it, <laughs> right? right? And, and you could actually argue that the lack of regulation. And I don't really have a, a passionate position on it because uh, regulation could go either way in the United States, frankly. So it doesn't necessarily excite me. But the lack of regulation and lack of clarity is what sent people offshore to places that they could lose their assets. So. In the end, it was the lack of regulation that caused people to lose their shirts and all their money. And now, I, you know, I, I keep talking about this, but with FTX, Voyager and Celsius were horrible, right? BlockFi, it's horrible. But FTX is the crypto natives who are passionate about this industry and were actively trading and actively moving their coins around and actually using these things. Now those people are broke, Well, right? And, and Scott, that's a really important point. You know, I, I had a, a friend who... You know, four weeks ago when when this all started and FTX filed bankruptcy, he said, well, shit, I had money in FTX. How am I going to get the money out? And I said to him, well, why did you have money in FTX? Because what people forget is the, the entire point of FTX, the value prop was it's a bit more of an advanced, sophisticated platform. It's for, you know, serious traders who are trading on leverage and they're doing options trading. You know, if you're just a regular person who, who's decided I've seen enough headlines about crypto that I think I'd like to buy a little Bitcoin and ETH, you wouldn't go to FTX or shouldn't have. And so it is interesting, you're right, that a, a platform that was more sophisticated, so to speak, and, you know, Sam was a hero until he wasn't. And people also forget before this latest collapse, he had already become a villain with true DJs oh, because he was yeah. advocating over regulation. They were calling him a suit. And so, you know, maybe he was never the hero you wanted. But that is true, is that FTX was in some ways not akin to Coinbase. Mm -hmm. 
Although I think if you look at sort of their trajectory over the last, you know, year and a half with the Blockfolio acquisition, the big push to FTX US, they were clearly starting to open up and, and target retail more. more Everyone uh, wants to be everything. Uh, right? Arena, Tom Brady, right? I mean, yeah. listen, I mean, Dan, obviously, like you're the interim CEO of Wonderfy. You, you're pretty close to this, right? Yeah. I, I mean, Kevin's been taking uh, shots left and right. Kevin O'Leary, yeah. obviously, because of his involvement there. And, you know, I don't, I don't yeah, fault absolutely. him for his involvement. Yeah, I mean, you look at, uh, you know, the uh, amount of people, the diverse group of people, investors that were associated with this. I mean, there were a lot of people with their reputation on the line. And, uh, you know, when you look at a company that you know raises at 32 billion from people like Sequoia, Teachers Pension, Ontario Teachers Pension in Canada, and some of the biggest investment groups in, in the world, you know, I don't think you can fault any one individual or investment uh, group for participating or being associated I, you know in many ways i think um they were duped by you know either fraudulent information or misleading information or by a character that was seemingly created in the last cycle uh with respect to sbf being this you know holier than thou smarter than everyone figure and you know so i don't you know, I don't think it would be really fair to focus on any one individual for being associated with FDA. Not when it's everyone. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and, and, everyone, but uh, that's yeah. a reason. I mean, that's the reason that like venture capital, when they raise the fund, they want a big name lead investor, right? Because there's this big name lead investor. So in that case, we could say it was Sequoia or BlackRock or whoever, right? Everyone was in, in FTX in some way. And then everyone goes, well, they did. They obviously did their due diligence. Like Sequoia is not here without due diligence. So I don't need to do my due diligence. And it's yeah. a, just this endless sort of tale from there. So you get the one big name or two or three. They're on an arena. Come on. Of course, I'm going to give them money. Right. Yeah. And I think that. Yeah. And I think if you look at the timing, too, you know, I think venture capital had largely been had not been actively participating in this industry. You know, they were the way they were last year. And with respect to, you know, investments like in FTX. And so. You know, could I envision a scenario in, you know, 2021 where FOMO creeps in and, you know, people feel like this is like the can't miss opportunity of a lifetime and, you know, making uh, maybe overlooking certain uh, red flags or just overlooking basic diligence. I mean, I could see a scenario where that could play out and, you know, FOMO exists, you know, very much at the retail level. And, you know, would it be crazy to assume it would exist at the institutional level, too, when there's like you know, very, you know, strict competition for allocations in some of these, uh, you know, these deals. Some of this was also like the that kind of bullshitty American exceptionalism problem, right? Because the mythos of Sam, like, you know, the Stanford professor parents and how many headlines have said math whiz about Caroline Ellison. And so, uh, you know, I, I heard the argument. It, I was thinking about this the other day, maybe almost two years ago, back when Brian Brooks, the former regulator, was the CEO of Binance U.S., we were in an interview with him at one of our decrypt, you know, virtual events back before everyone was ready to do in person again, you know, and all conferences went virtual. And he he said that there was a little bit of this othering of CZ and of Binance. And at the time, it just sounded like, well, someone who works for Binance kind of it's a little bit of a stretch trying to say, basically, if you paint Binance as shady, you're racist. But now you look and it's like, gosh, what a plot twist that the company and the founder who were always painted as dodging regulation, you know, how many times did CZ just outright refuse to say where Binance is located? He'd say, we don't have the headquarters. We're truly decentralized. And regulators were saying, well, you got to be based somewhere, buddy. And we need to know where to go after where you. Where are you? Drop a pin, buddy. <laughs> and in contrast, like Sam was Mr. Washington and he was whining and dining congressional staffers. He was 
pals with Maxine Waters. And so there was sort of an automatic trust of him that in hindsight was totally ridiculous. And it was, uh, you know, and the company wasn't even based in the US. It was based outside because the US is so unfriendly regulation wise. So there's a lot of irony there. And I think there's a lot of soul searching that some of those VC firms do need to do. I don't give them, I'm not sure I give them as much of a pass as others are, even though everyone- yeah, I'm not trying to give a pass. I'm just trying to explain how it happens. And, and yeah. what you said actually reminds me very much, and maybe it's just because I had Paolo Arduino on, on, on Friday from Tether, mm. but how you just described the view of CZ and Binance largely reminds me how Tether has consistently been attacked and viewed as the offshore shady one and just continues to keep on chugging and, and know, Dan, allowing Dan, redemptions and- like to, to Dan's point, you know, even uh, in some of the early, uh, you know, articles on the back of this fallout, you see, you know, blaming CZ for, you know, taking out FTT or, you know, some type of like, you know, uh, you know, premeditated attack or plan to take out a competitor, you know, when, you know, you kind of step back and say, okay, well, there's $10 billion of client deposits missing. You know, I don't really think the story here is Binance going after a competitor. I think it's more so, uh, you know, how was this platform operating, you know, basically from the beginning and, and, and you know, how could they misappropriate that amount of money? Like it's, it, it's sort of like, again, into the point about math whiz or, you know, even like the drug use or whatever it might be like, it, it really is just sort of like missing the, the bigger story here. Right. And, and both things can be true, right? Like CZ saw a great opportunity to kneecap a competitor and he took it and jumped on it and he sparked the sell off fine. That doesn't change that, you know, there was right. yes. blatant fraud going on. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, you can be, you know, he, he exploited a, a, a situation when he saw the Alameda balance sheet, you know, gee, I, I wonder, you know, who leaked that balance sheet someone with, with something to gain from, from FTX going under, but he also yeah. exposed that this was a bad actor and had fooled everyone. If one tweet can take you down, then like you're glass Joe, not Mike Tyson. Right. You know what I mean? Right. You're, you're the first competitor in the game. And, 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 I mean, it's pretty I, I, think, I think the, the Caroline tweet saying, we'll buy all your FTT at $22 oh probably caused more damage than, than anything CZ said, truthfully. Because she literally know. could have tweeted, if this goes to $21 and 99 cents, we're insolvent. So guys, please. You know, the right. way that the, the crypto uh -huh. Twitter works, I mean, people see that and, you know, what, what else are they going to do? Right? Like, yeah, uh, I mean, everyone's a contrarian and a conspiracy theorist. So that was, an yeah, incredible everyone sees that. They go, let's find out what happens at 2199. Let's, you know, and which, then, which, <laughs> like, quick, quick, fun side note for all of us, like the, you know, happening in parallel. I mean, literally the same four week period to the FTX story was the, the Twitter drama. And yeah. that is also a crypto story. You know, we've been covering that closely. And the, the people who are like, ooh, I'll go to Mastodon. It's like, no, you won't. I mean, this entire thing played out on Twitter. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the entire industry, the biggest moves, the biggest moments, sell-offs, um, you know, disgraces of DeFi founders who did XYZ. It all happens on Twitter. Twitter is not going anywhere. And so that's been a fascinating um, parallel. And, and even, you know, Musk and SBF had talked about Twitter investment. It's all connected and it's all but fascinating. Do you even look at like, you know, Twitter accounts like this autism capital that people think is somehow associated to FTX, but I mean, they are, you know, probably covering this story better than most, if mm -hmm. not all of the mainstream media. Zach, is, Zach, XBT, all these blockchain sleuths. Yeah. Yep. But right? Dan, doesn't that, so you are, I mean, you're obviously crypto native media. Isn't there then 
Okay, we know that the mainstream media is is totally punting and missing the ball on this, but isn't there then like a side where it's the native Twitter people who are also blowing it and it's too far in the conspiracy and there has to be sort of a happy medium and way to thread the needle, which I would imagine where someone like Decrypt comes in, but... Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the challenge that we go through. Like, look, I, I was at Legacy Media Places before I went over to Decrypt. I was at Fortune Magazine for five and a half years and then Yahoo Finance five and a half years. And what I always was frustrated by, and I'm not like, you know, rah, rah, buy Bitcoin instead of the dollar. You know, I'm not out there giving investment advice. I obviously just think that crypto is fascinating and it's cool and it's here to stay, which I think is table stakes. You don't have to be like a, a crypto crazy to believe that. But what always frustrated me was the big places, you know, CNBC, The Journal, The Times, Reuters, FT, they would only write when it was either um, Bitcoin's tanking 8%. You know, screaming headlines or Bitcoin surging. Here's why. Um, and so it was. It was only sensationalistic, as if nothing else interesting could be happening, kind of below the surface. And I, I will say, even though so many places have uh, covered the FTX thing with remarkable um, credulousness and sympathy, and I've been appalled by that, I do think that for the most part, big, big traditional financial sites have at least in the last years discovered we need to care about this industry. We need to yeah. cover crypto, and that's new. And I'll give them some credit for that. Um, but you're right, Scott. I mean, we try to be the adults in the room. What can be hard about reporting on crypto is when you have like anons on Twitter who say something, but they say, well, but they're not, they would never call themselves journalists. So they're not held to the same standards. They don't care. And then we have to suss out, you know, how true is this? Very often in the last year, the things that start as rumors on crypto Twitter turn out to be 100% correct, mm -hmm. but not yeah. always. And, you know, yeah. lately there's, you know, the, the hot one right now, you alluded to conspiracy theories, is people say, Sam was installed by politicians from the beginning. And That's just dumb. He was always supposed to fail spectacularly. <laughs> and then they could use that as an example of why crypto is bad. Like, guys, come on. You Come know? on, man, because, I mean, it's not like uh, the crypto industry is so powerful that they needed a conspiracy theory to take it down. Right. They could just aggressively regulate without uh, having a fall guy to do it. So, uh, yeah, that doesn't make much sense. Yeah. What is interesting, though, we talked about sort of, Dean, the self-inflicted wound by Caroline's tweet, right, that everybody sort of saw. Speaking of self-inflicted wounds, the new narrative right now, and it seems to be that the Justice Department's even investigating it, you know, SPF for market manipulation, is that actually their Alameda or FTX aggressively shorting Luna and crashing that was an incredible profitable trade for them at the time that ended up being the catalyst for their own demise, which would be a hell of a story if true. Yeah. Self-pwn of all self-pwns. So I, do you think that there, that holds water? Uh, I mean, it certainly could. And, you know, I mean, I've, you know, similar to Dan on crypto Twitter, you see all types of things. So I'm not sure where to decipher what's true or not, but you, you know, you have, I have read stuff to the effect of, you know, three arrows having this massive Luna position and, you know, similarly to how, you know, the $22 tweet gets attacked by traders, you know, that position was attacked. And certainly, you know, if you think about one large party having a massive long position on Terra Luna or UST and another aggressively shorting it to get it towards liquidation, you know, uh, and being on the other side of that based on the fact that it went to zero pretty quickly. I imagine, you know, there was some profit made on the downside by some, uh, you know, firms. I, I, I can't speculate on who specifically, but, you know, I think it's just and by the way. Yeah, yeah what you just described is beautiful. That's the free market, right? And that that's two counter traders. What's not beautiful is if it was happening on FTX and FTX knew the position as a result of that and was able yeah. to target it directly because it was on their exchange. 
That's well, where it and, gets a little shady. <laughs> yeah, there was a, yeah there, there was a Nansen report that we covered back on November 17th. So this is not a completely new idea. And uh, their conclusion was that the FTX collapse was triggered by the Terra collapse. Now, that wasn't making that connection that, that now we think was there. But I, I was always saying right after the, the bankruptcy that the irony of Terra in May and now FTX um, in November was that even though they were very different entities, you know, one was this algorithmic stablecoin, which is a concept that probably doesn't work, yeah. and the other was a centralized crypto exchange, there's something very similar at the heart of both. And that is you create a token and say, well, don't worry, because the value of X is tied up in Y, this other token. Well, what the hell happens when Y goes to zero, right? Uh, I mean, basically, you say they were they were lending out or, or doing agreements and commitments using FTT. Well, FTT was just a shitcoin that they made up, right? And so that's why I said earlier, you know, Coinbase gets to say, you know, having an exchange token isn't like evil per se. I mean, Binance has BNB, but it's about how you use it. And Coinbase gets to say, well, we don't even mess with that. We don't have an exchange token, which is also ironic because way back when Coinbase IPO'd, we interviewed a couple of different purists who said the crypto community is really disappointed in Coinbase. Because they don't they have a token. So yeah, why, token. Why would they go to a direct listing on the stock why. exchange when they could just print their own money instead, right? And now, now we can see how nonsensical that is. But to your point, inherently an exchange token, if it's used, if it has utility and has a yeah. very transparent and fixed supply, you know exactly where they're coming from and it's actually, you know, reduces fees and stuff. As long as you're not collateralizing it for loans based on a theoretical value, it's really not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, we still are here because we believe that some of this technology has utility, right? Well, yeah, that, that I, yeah, tweet is still the best tweet I've seen from this entire past four or five weeks <laughs> where he said, like, three lessons from this. And number one was, don't use your own token as collateral. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And I think that's probably the bigger problem than having a token, truthfully. Um, but, you know, I think it's like one of those things, you know, uh, you know, where I wouldn't be surprised if there was a link between what happened with Terra and what's ultimately happened here. You know, when Terra blew up, three arrows took the, you know, the brunt of the, you know, public publicity of, of being wiped out as a result. But, you know, the fact that they were the only, uh, you know, fund or firm that was blown out by the Terra collapse is, you know, just hard to believe. Right. And so, you, you know, you start to envision a world where a lot of these market participants and what, you know, it ultimately you know, it's sort of uncovered through this is like the interrelation or connectivity between all of these firms, BlockFi, Celsius, Voyager, FTX, Three Arrows, like there is a very close connection here, maybe not like, a, a, you know, not related party, but certainly the way in which these platforms operated and borrowed and lent funds, right? And so, you know, were Three Arrows the only ones that were significantly impacted by Terra Luna? Probably not. And <laughs> I mean certainly, you know, those impacts may take time to resonate or, get compounded by, you know, sending client money, perhaps to uh, cover some of those losses, uh, who knows something to that effect, but those issues can compound and get worse. And then when markets start to draw down again, you know, you can be exposed pretty quickly as we've seen. Yeah. Dan, you, I mean, you, he just brought up BlockFi and you casually yeah. sort of said the, in passing, the inevitable BlockFi, yes. like well, collapse. Well, I mean, they've been, they've literally for the last three years, it's like Neo yeah. and the Matrix, like yeah. magically dodging bullets. <laughs> and, it's and, unbelievable that they were after Voyager and Celsius when you look back. And, and no one needed me to, to point out like this thing was always had a ton of red flags, but from the minute BlockFi, I mean, back, you know, even 2018 or 2019 when I was still at Yahoo Finance, um, someone else, one of my colleagues who, who also hosted a live show would have on, um, Flory, the, the founder often. Yeah, and when, yeah. when they would say, 
you know, oh, yields of 16% or whatever it is on your deposits. I was like, you know, there's a reason you're not supposed to get that kind of yield. I mean, there's a reason that um, outside of crypto, you know, Marcus by Goldman Sachs and Ally and these other so-called high yield interest accounts, that their example of a high interest rate was 2.5%. And so BlockFi, Celsius, Voyager, these lenders, um, I think it was very obvious from the beginning that there was something very dangerous about this model. And then if you remember what happened with BlockFi was multiple like um, state attorneys general and other regulators were saying, we believe that your high yield crypto savings accounts are basically securities. And so they settled for a hundred million, which is nothing. And it's like, well, how does a hundred million dollar fine to the SEC help anyone? And the only reason they survived a little longer, ironically, was FTX US bailed them out with a $400 million line of credit. You know, Celsius went under, Voyager should have gone under. Sam was Mr. Bailout, which is just insane. I mean, looking back on it, maybe that was a distraction, you know, from looking at the underlying business. We had an interview with Sam where he said to my to my horror, not only was he, you know, happy with doing the bailouts, but he was disappointed that other big crypto players weren't helping them do more bailouts. And that was just a stunning quote. I mean, even at the time and now even more so in hindsight. But, you know, BlockFi, I think, was always kind of hanging by a thread and, and was just teetering. Off I mean, they, they were always hanging by a thread. And then when you now dig into the bankruptcy, I mean, yes, they got this like, you know, credit line or, you know, facility from FTX US. But then they had a bigger loan than that credit facility out to Alameda. Right. And so it's it like, did, did FTX, I mean, it, what, what kind of weird, incestuous, like, uh, bring out the gimp kind of strange thing was happening here? Did, did, did Sam basically go like, yeah, I'll give you 400 million, but you got to give it back to Alameda to fill our hole. I mean, none of it makes any sense. I mean, it, it's look at Gemini and Gemini, uh, Genesis, which I think was also an example. You know how we were all saying earlier, it's not fair that people equate this with the whole industry. That's still true. The, the retort to that that I think is, is also That's not so untrue, it's like all these companies are too, as Dean was just mapping out, they're too sort of involved and reliant on each other. Um, and that's how you get classic contagion. I mean, Genesis at first, when FTX went under, came out and said, don't worry, we're okay. And then they went, well, well, there, there is this one thing, which is we're going to have to pause redemptions and withdrawals on our, um, on our lending arm because of FTX. And then Gen Gemini comes out, the Winklevoss Brothers Exchange and says, well, and we will have to pause redemptions on our um, Gemini Earn product, but only because our partner for that was Genesis. And it's like, boop, 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 you know? Right, maybe I mean, we should have known when Genesis uh, basically had a defaulted 2.1 or $2.3 billion loan to 3AC that uh, maybe we should have, it should have been more obvious to us that if Gemini was using Genesis for their Earn product, that was going to be problematic. Dean, you're obviously with WonderFi. I mean, you guys are still offering yield-based products, right? How do you do that at this point in a safe and secure manner? I, I, I talked to Ben and Kevin in Vegas, and I asked basically that same question. And, you know, Ben, who was the CEO at the time, was basically like, listen, like every day I answer the phone and try to explain Celsius and Voyager's mistakes, like mm -hmm. answer for them as if I did it, right? And yep. so how do you like, you know, continue to offer a secure and safe yield product to, to retail when you're seeing all this that's happening. I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm saying like, how do you continue yep. to have customers yeah. and yeah. So yeah, so WonderFi's two uh, main operating businesses are BitBuy and Coinberry. They are both regulated crypto trading platforms through Canadian regulation. Um, the way we offer yield today is through BitBuy with a regulated staking product. So users can uh, come in and, and stake their assets directly to the to the network. Today we offer Ethereum, Solana, Matic, 
hoping to roll out more coins in the near term as well. Um, but everything we do from an operating perspective is governed by um, you know, securities laws in Canada that have been established specifically for crypto trading platforms. Um, so we feel pretty strong about our model. Uh, you know, uh, we always uh, felt more comfortable with staking as a yield uh, offering uh, compared to borrow lend because of the inherent counterparty risk that is associated with the borrow lend, right? Um, you know, certainly I couldn't have predicted, you know, to the extent that the borrow lend market and crypto would blow up as dramatically as it has this year. But I certainly, you know, think about, you know, from a regulated platform perspective, how do we mitigate those risks? Because anything we want to do, like staking, for example, we have to, um, you know, demonstrate to our regulators how we can offer this in a safe and compliant manner that protects users and, you know, who the counterparties are and why and how we are comfortable with using them. And so you look at a world where, you know, you're using stake, you know, you're staking and you're using someone who manages the validators, but it's all directly, um, you know, uh, staked out of cold storage and into the validator itself and directly yeah. to the network and mitigates any sort of counterparty risk. So I think, you know, for us today, uh, you know, we're fortunate that, you know, the yield on our platforms is generated through staking, which in my view mitigates a ton of the, counterparty yeah. risk or concerns it's a completely around. different business model yeah, yeah it's exactly. a, i mean it's a great it's a completely dis different business model so both of you guys so listen all of this is fun to talk about in hindsight and we're really good at it right at figuring it out i'm not asking for price predictions or anything wild but do we believe do you believe that we're going to see more huge news or do you think it'll be sort of a slow drip of contagion there's more contagion out there right i mean there's no mm. question about that in my mind so what comes next, I really, is the question. Like, what's your prediction for how the crypto industry absorbs these problems or are the problems going to keep on keep on coming? Dean? Ben? Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, no. uh, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to start. Look, I mean, yeah, obviously I can't predict what's going to happen. But, you know, like I said, I see a ton of parallels with what's happened in, uh, you know, this year in crypto with what happened in Canada in 2019. And so, you know, you have these, you know, very public blowups, um, you know, certainly in the short term that uh, create a lack of confidence in most likely crypto plat trading platforms, centralized platforms, but certainly the industry as a whole. Um, you know, I believe on the back of what's happened this year, there will be significant pressure on regulators in the US and abroad to get this right, or at least start the process of having regulation in place. Um, ultimately, you know, I think that's important for the industry to grow and certainly for the industry to regain the confidence of retail investors and uh, you know future adopters of this technology and so you know for me i i i think you know and 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 uh, sorry just to add to that you know i think stablecoin regulation will be a big um you know uh area of focus next year as well so if, you know i look ahead and you know albeit short-term volatility albeit short-term lack of confidence in the market generally but if this is a catalyst uh, to put regulatory frameworks in place in some of the biggest markets for crypto in the world, uh, you know, certainly I see that being a, um, you know, a, a positive, uh, you know, um, advancement, you know, whether that takes place over six to 12 months, that's hard to tell. Um, but obviously, I, ultimately, I think that will uh, go a long way towards regaining, um, you know, the trust of the public, the trust of stakeholders, the trust of potential um, investors or participants in the industry. Yeah, I like that take. Um, I'd say, you know, the current kind of 
crypto madness was not just from FTX. Let's remember that uh, for basically the entire past year, uh, the crypto market was suddenly behaving in lockstep with tech stocks and was very um, correlated to the actions of the Fed and to inflation. And so that needs to change first for, for crypto to look up. I mean, I don't make price predictions, but I will say um, I'll sort of cutely phrase it this way. If the past is any indication, uh, crypto will not stay down forever, right? I mean, these things yeah. come in waves and come in cycles. We've already seen some green shoots in the last couple of weeks. And actually, Bitcoin has been pretty stable in sort of that high teens range for like a few weeks now or maybe a couple months. Um, in terms of the industry, like, you know, how do you regain trust by actually uh, building products that work? And, you know, all you can do is that. All you can do is continue to execute. If you're Coinbase, like you can suffer the slings and arrows of your stock being a dog, you know, in the short term. And they did layoffs. Everyone did layoffs. Dapper Labs did layoffs. And I noticed they all said, sorry, we overhired. Well, lessons learned, but a lot of these companies, even the good ones, they behaved as if it was always going to be up only. Everything was always going to be good forever. They should have been kind of stockpiling their nuts for winter. Um, and so I think not just from FTX, but from the entire past 12 months, there's a lot that the crypto players that are going to stick around have learned, you hope. And so the next year, regardless of what happens with price, like there's going to be a lot of building. It's going to look a lot like 2018. And I remember reporting on crypto in 2017. Everyone wanted to do it. You know, Bloomberg and others suddenly assigned a bunch of reporters to cover crypto. Then the price crashed in 2018. They went, oh, I guess crypto's done now. Uh, everyone will put some of those crypto reporters on the real estate desk. And gee, it's like narrator, it wasn't dead. So that's what I think probably 2023 will be like. Um, I wouldn't expect a mania like we saw in the start of the pandemic, but I think you'll see building and growth and some positives. And you'll probably see some more companies getting in if they really believe that that you know, all they need to do is just um, believe that this isn't going to disappear tomorrow, which we know it isn't, despite the collapse of one big company. This is well, the perfect time that... to build. Perfect time to build and yeah. uh, head down and, and focus on product and 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 build the product that people will want in the next cycle. That's become well, a cliche they'll... to say, but it, it's no, the truth. It is. Right? It is. The truth. Now they're going to put all those uh, real estate reporters that they moved from crypto somewhere else when that market completely crashes and, and, and <laughs> right. dies. <laughs> right. right. And, and to your point, Dan, you know, it, it, they all clearly believed the bull market was going to go on forever with their hiring. And that seems to be the case. But I do also think there were challenges where they literally just had to hire people to service yeah. the actual amount of customers flowing in. I mean, I remember when Doge hit. You know, and oh, I was talking sadly to Steve Ehrlich from, from Steve Steve Ehrlich from Voyager, and he was like, "We got a million people in like a month, and customer service can't onboard a million people." So it was like these forced hirings to some degree too. And when I had CZ last on, which was a while ago, he said, "You know, he was taking customer service calls, and there weren't enough people like available to work in China that he could hire to, you know, get the job done." So I think that uh, it's a disaster of its own making to some degree, but it is good to see that they're at least tightening their belts. I mean, we have someone here, architect Jeff, this is a great way to finish. Who said the takeaway from all this is stockpile your nuts. So I think that <laughs> that's a, a great way. Uh, Dean, Dan, uh, Alex earlier, guys, thank you so much. That was really one of the most uh, spirited and enlightening and fun conversations that I've had uh, here in a long time. Guys, everyone, you can follow all of them. I'm going to get there. Alex Tapscott was at Alex Tapscott. Um, Bitby underscore Dean and read Dan Wright, which I love. R-E-A-D Dan W-R-I-T-E. I will read you right. I've been reading you right for a long time. So 
Uh, appreciate you guys. I will be back, of course, tomorrow, everyone, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Fridays. We do a weekend review, and I know we've kept you guys for three minutes too long, so we're going to get out of here. I'll see everyone tomorrow. Thanks again, guys. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.